When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. You said when someone is president of the United States, their authority is total. That is not true. Who, who okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to write up papers on this. It's not going to be necessary because the governors need us one way or the other, because ultimately it comes with the federal government. Hello, I'm Adam Smith, and welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from Oxford's Rothermere American Institute in which we try to understand America from the outside in. In this episode, we're asking if the coronavirus pandemic has exposed not just the failings of the Trump administration, but the most fundamental structural feature of US government, federalism. Donald Trump says that when it comes to dealing with the states, his authority is total. You can look at constitutionally, you can look at federalism, you can look at it any different way. The fact that I don't want to exert my power is much different. We have the power. You have, does the federal government have the power? The federal government has absolute power. It has the power as to whether or not I'll use that power. We'll see. Well, the trouble with this claim is that, well, like so much else that comes out of his mouth, it's simply not true. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, in his own press conference the following day, was asked about the president's claims. This is what he said. What are you going to grant me what the Constitution gave me before you were born? It's called the Tenth Amendment. And I didn't need the president of the United States to tell me uh, the powers of a state. People did that. Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. uh, They are the ones who gave me the power. Maybe he should have read the Constitution before he said he had the power to open the states. The Tenth Amendment that Cuomo invokes says that powers not specifically delegated to the federal government remain with the states. That would certainly include quarantines and lockdowns. But we've had 230 years of Supreme Court decisions, of political rhetoric about states' rights, a civil war, the rise of a powerful federal government in the 20th century, and yet the ambiguities and tensions around this federal-state relationship remain unresolved. A division of power between the federal and state governments may have seemed like a good idea in theory, but in practice it has been far from straightforward. To help me explore these issues in the light of the coronavirus pandemic and this standoff between Trump and the governors, I'm joined by Grace Mallon from Oxford University, who is a specialist on how federalism worked in practice in the years after the Constitution came into effect. Grace, thank you so much for joining me on the Last Best Hope podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, Grace, let's start by, I really want to understand what the framers of the Constitution thought they were trying to do in separating power between the federal government and the states in this way. What was the problem they were trying to solve? The problem they were trying to solve was that the federal government in about 1787, when the constitution was framed, didn't really have any effective power. And that was the big problem that they were facing. Um, 
So they tried to create a document that would give the federal government some power. But at the same time, uh, Americans were very used to most government happening at the state level. Um, And so they were trying to find a way to uh, give the federal government some effective power, but without taking away all of the state's powers. There was some talk at the Constitutional Convention. I think some of it was sarcastic of just abolishing the states altogether, abolish the state governments, we'll just have a a unitary state. Um, They didn't end up doing that. That was not a popular view. And so they just decided to 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 create this new government where did that did Alexander Hamilton was he one of the people supporting that idea? Hamilton was one of the people who would sort of be in favor of this highly centralized state. He thought that the British constitution, the British system with a a unitary state was really the best model you could possibly have. Um, And so, yeah, he was in favor of this. But what they end up doing is something which is sort of, I think, unknown in, in political science up to that point, which is they said, we're going to divide sovereignty between the United States government and the individual state governments. You say it was unknown in political science. Were there were there no models either from the contemporary world or from the ancient world that they could draw on? Well, there were a lot of models of confederations. Um, so James Madison, actually, the year before the Constitutional Convention, went about researching what kinds of models the United States might build a new government on, um, his notes on ancient and modern confederacies. Um, And he found that there were lots of examples from the ancient world where you'd have a group of states coming together basically to pool their resources for military uh, purposes mostly. And the same thing was happening in medieval and early modern Europe with um, uh, Holland and uh, Switzerland, particularly sort of famous examples of confederacies. Why were those confederacies then not regarded as a as a as a suitable model for what they were trying to put together in Philadelphia in 1787? Well, they didn't really have central governments in the same way. Well, Switzerland didn't have a central government in the same way that the United States now does. Um, so they essentially had independent states which were allied. They had sort of a, a pact. Uh, between them for the common defense. But there wasn't a legislature as such where they would all come together and make laws that all of them would then abide by. Um, mm. And in Holland, they did have a strong, stronger central state, but they didn't have um, a republic, a successful republic. They ended up having a monarchy, a hereditary monarchy. And obviously, the United States was not in favor of this model. Mm. I, I wonder whether... that. It occurs to me that possibly they had a, another sort of model in front of them, which was the British Empire itself. I mean, that Britain, as you, as you say, was was a, a, and to some extent, despite devolution to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, still remains a relatively centralised state, and certainly was then. But these people had the experience of living, and in almost all cases, participating in government of colonies of British colonies in North America that had levels of self-government despite being within an imperial context. I wonder whether that served as a model either positively or negatively. Well, it certainly served as a model for the construction of their central government, where they decided we're going to do something a little that looks a little bit like Britain. We're going to have a sort of, quote unquote, monarchical element, um, which is the president. We're going to have a legislature like parliament, a sort of a popular legislature. We're going to have uh, an almost aristocratic upper house, the Senate, where they have longer terms. Um, so there was definitely a lot of influence there, but they also wanted to avoid the problem which had been Parliament and had been insisting, we alone are sovereign. 
we are the only we are going to be the ultimate recourse um, for sort of the creation of of laws. And they didn't want to pursue that model in America. So in the run up to the American Revolution, the problem had been that they, the colonists, many of whom are now post-revolution trying to create their own government, these colonists had felt as if they were running their own colonies. They felt as if they realistically had self-government. They were able to levy taxes. They were able to make their own local decisions. They were electing uh, people to serve in their colonial legislatures. But the problem that arose in the run-up to the American Revolution was that as from their point of view, it appeared all of a sudden the British government was saying, oh, actually, you know, that parliament you've got there in Boston or Philadelphia, actually, when it really comes to it, we don't really regard that as significant. Yes. We can override it at will mm-hmm. in Westminster. So they were trying to construct an alternative relationship between a an overarching government and state governments that was gave much more significance and power to the to the the lower level. Yes, exactly. And particularly to retain, um, you know, many of the powers that they had previously had. So after the revolution, they realized they had this problem that they didn't have a central government that could make treaties effectively, that could raise taxes effectively, um, that could raise armies effectively. And so they wanted to give those particular powers to a central government, a, a sort of um, federal government, but they wanted the states to be able to do everything else that they had previously been doing. And as you say, to raise their own taxes, to make their own decisions in most areas. And to deal with public health and matters of quarantine and what we would now call lockdown. Yes, precisely. Um, so uh, under the Constitution, um, all those powers which are not explicitly delegated to Congress um, are left with the states. And among those powers of what um, American legal scholars would call the police power, which is what we would think of as most of the things that government does, and certainly most of the things that government did in the early modern period. They would regulate uh, public health, the public welfare, sort of salus populis prima lex, and they would, um, you know, they would Just regulate... Just translate that Latin phrase, which I believe the Prime Minister allegedly uh, used um, <laughs> in a meeting on Friday. Did translate that Latin phrase for us, Grace? It means um, the public welfare is the, supreme, is the highest law, uh, the welfare of the people. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that was definitely a responsibility that remained with the states under the constitution. The constitution does not explicitly delegate to Congress that Um, power. That's actually within the constitution itself, I think in in article two, isn't it? But then in addition, and almost to to really ram home the point, the 10th amendment, which Governor Cuomo referred to there in that clip, kind of really reinforces this, doesn't it? By explicitly stating that any powers not enumerated uh, as, as federal responsibilities were reserved to the to the state. So that seems on the face of it then pretty straightforward. So why are we even having this uh, discussion then, Grace? I'm guessing that it didn't really work out as straightforwardly as that in practice. Well, no, I think this is a really important point. Yes, the constitution sort of purports to create a division between a fairly sort of straightforward division between what the federal government can do and what the states can do. And there shouldn't really under the constitution be overlap between those two groups. Um, And they shouldn't necessarily need to work together, at least this is not explicitly stated in the constitution, um, to achieve sort of their particular policy goals. But in fact, 
as soon as the constitution went into effect in 1789, when the first Congress met, um, it quickly became clear that actually a lot of important policy goals couldn't be met without the states and the federal government working together. Um, And public health was one of those areas. And so in 1793, there was a major epidemic of yellow fever that affected the United States. And that threw up, didn't it, a lot of these federal state tensions, which we're seeing, a, which we're seeing in the current crisis. Yes, exactly. So um, part of the creation of the new federal government was that the um, federal government, which was then based in Philadelphia, sent out uh, tax officials all over the union to settle in the ports where they would check the cargoes of ships and they would levy a tax on on the cargoes of those ships. Um, And so they would create these customs houses. And uh, so you had federal officials living in ports all over the Union. Um, And a particular state governor, Henry Lee uh, of Virginia, or at least this is the example I found, um, really had a big question about whether the federal government or the state government should be responsible for quarantine in 1793 because... There were now both state officials and federal officials living together in the ports of the United States where the quarantine would need to be imposed. So he wrote to Thomas Jefferson, who was a secretary of state mentioned by um, Governor Cuomo there um, and said to Thomas Jefferson, would it be better um, if the federal government and particularly the customs officials organize quarantine during this time? We've got yellow fever coming in from the Caribbean. Um, and Thomas Jefferson said no. He didn't want the federal government to take responsibility for the. And point. was that just on, as it were, ideological grounds? Um, well, that would certainly be an answer because Jefferson was generally in favour of limiting the power of the federal government, at least until he himself became president. Um, but um, it was also because Congress hadn't made a law that allowed for federal officials to take part in these quarantine processes. And as we've just discussed, um, public health was understood to be under the umbrella of state responsibilities more broadly. So Jefferson was taking a very kind of straight down the line position there. Um, and you're speculating this may may have been because he just genuinely didn't think that he had as Secretary of State the power to do any more. But It may also have been because that fitted his view of the appropriate relationship between the states and the federal government in the first place. But this guy, um, Henry Lee from Virginia, um, which was Thomas Jefferson's home state, um, what was motivating him, though? Was it a much more pragmatic desire to just to try to work out how to solve this problem? Or was, was Henry Lee also ideologically driven? Did he want the federal government to play a more central role? That's a really interesting question. There's not a huge amount of evidence in the letters that I've read, but I sort of speculate. Um, First of all, Henry Lee does say in his letters to Jefferson, my state law, which creates quarantine regulations, gives the customs officials the power to impose quarantine. Now, I, the state of Virginia, no longer have customs officials in the ports because that's all been given over to the federal government. So, yeah, from a practical sort of perspective, it just seemed 
logical to him that this power would be handed over to the federal government. But there's also, I mean, and and this is me speculating, there's also the fact that this is sort of a national area of responsibility in a sense. It's it's a commercial regulation, which is delegated to, to Congress by the Constitution. It's affecting the entire eastern seaboard of the United States, which is pretty much all of the United States at that point. So, yeah, you can really see why it would have made sense to him to ask the federal government to take responsibility. Jefferson said no. And so the federal government didn't play a role mm. in the in, in trying to manage the, the epidemic. What were the consequences? Well, things got pretty serious in the 1793 epidemic. Um, I mean, most serious in Philadelphia itself, where, as I said, it was the federal... capital of the United States at the time, wasn't it? So the, the federal government itself was actually situated there. Right, exactly. So they were there in Philadelphia um, until they weren't because they knew that the yellow fever was coming and said, well, we better get out of here. So everybody got out, including Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of State, and they left um, the management of the yellow fever crisis um, essentially to a local board, a local committee of citizens. Most of them had day jobs, you know, as as merchants or artisans um, and physicians, and they all came together to try and organize this response. There wasn't really any funding structure um, for this effort. So they ended up relying on charitable donations. The, the uh, city of New York sent them some money. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and many of the people who were involved in this effort themselves died of the yellow fever that year. And then the following year, um, the yellow fever returned uh, to a number of other ports, including Norfolk, Virginia, which is which is where Henry Lee was particularly worried about. A moment ago, Grace, you you mentioned commerce as being an area of activity that the federal government did take responsibility for. And there is a one of the things that the Constitution does do, it's referred to as the interstate commerce clause, isn't it, is to give the federal government the the right or the responsibility to manage commerce between the states, presumably because that had been one of the major problems they were trying to sort out when they came together in Philadelphia to create a national government was the possibility or the reality of of former colonies, newly independent states, putting up tariff barriers and other kinds of trade barriers, which was regarded as and was extremely economically inefficient. Hmm. So the federal government did have that responsibility. Now, even something like an epidemic because quarantining affects trade, could be construed as being a responsibility of the federal government. So in the coming years, over the decades that that, that you uh, study for your research, did this begin to shift? I mean, there's a notion of the implied powers, isn't there? So, okay, it doesn't explicitly say in the Constitution that the federal government can do this, this and this, but maybe they need to have in order to properly regulate interstate commerce. Yeah, this is absolutely a question. This is certainly a question that I had. Why is quarantine the responsibility of the federal government under the Commerce Clause? Because quarantine is, you know, and was recognised at the time to be uh, in many senses, a commercial regulation. It mainly affects ships which are carrying goods from foreign nations or from um, other ports in the United States. And it actually could have a, a, a really serious economic impact in times like we're experiencing now, where you know all of the ships would be stopped for a significant period of time. In fact, there was a concern, there was often a concern um, 
that ships just wouldn't want to travel to particular ports if they knew they were going to undergo stringent quarantine sort of regimes. So that was certainly a question that I had. And I think some merchants in the early United States also had. And they said, look, how can you do this to us? Um, And in fact, doesn't the federal government have this responsibility? This question of um, federal powers over quarantine under the Commerce Clause did come before the Supreme Court of the United States in 1824 in a case called Gibbons versus Ogden, which was about steamships traveling between New York and New Jersey. And Chief Justice John Marshall gave a characteristically broad uh, reading of the powers of the United States under the Commerce Clause in his uh, opinion in this case. Um, But he stopped short at giving the federal government the power to regulate quarantine. And this was very much in keeping with the general um, approach to state power over quarantine throughout this period. For example, um, 1796 and 1799, Congress did make laws pertaining to quarantine, but all they said was federal officials, like customs officials, um, should help the state to enforce these laws as best they can. So it was all cooperative. The federal government never tried to seize power over quarantine regulations. It's the point you've made about Gibbons v. Ogden is may seem a little obscure, perhaps, to some listeners, but it's really, really interesting because those of us who teach American history, when we talk about Gibbons v. Ogden, we talk about it as a case which helped to consolidate federal power Mm. and the Chief Justice, the long-serving Chief Justice, uh, John Marshall, that you referred to, was very much in favor of strengthening federal power, wasn't he? So, But what you're saying is that even in that case, which we largely remember as being a, a, a transfer of power, essentially, from state regulatory authority to federal regulatory authority, even then, almost as an aside or something? I mean, how did he even bring it up? (laughs) He just said, oh, by the way, what I'm saying here does not apply to quarantine laws. If you read the the syllabus of the case, um, it's just one of the outcomes of the case. None of no commercial regulation of the United States shall be construed to um, to extend to quarantine regulation. So there was a real sense that this is absolutely something which belongs to state and particularly to local authorities, to municipal authorities like the city of New York itself. And so does this come back again to a a phrase you used earlier, the police power? Yes, exactly. I think um, one of the interesting things about looking at American government in the 19th century is there's this sort of myth um, that Americans hate government and that they try to push government as far away as possible and they go out on the frontier and they pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they avoid regulation at all costs. And, you know, if you look at the federal government, you you know, that could almost be a supportable view. Look, they they don't really do very much, do they? But when you look at the state... Although the federal government was distributing land and sending armies west in order to protect settlers, and they were doing quite a lot in the west, but but yeah. <laughs> they were doing, they were in fact doing a lot more than, you know, the myth would uh, would allow us to think. But, but the states were certainly, you know, um, creating these coercive laws, which really impacted the lives of the citizen every level, um, not just in terms of health care and education and labor laws and social welfare, but also in terms of morality and things like that. If you didn't go to church on Sunday, you could get in trouble. Uh, you know, you'd have to, you know, your divorce would be regulated by the state legislature. All of those things, gambling could be regulated by this and alcohol consumption could be regulated by the state legislature. So, yeah, they really did have this quite coercive 
um, hold over the lives of the citizen. Fast forward into the 20th century, Grace, and Mm. some of those things that you've just mentioned very much did seem to become federal responsibilities. So control of alcohol, we had the the Prohibition Amendment, and then it was repealed. Much more recently, we've had the um, uh, Supreme Court decision on on equal marriage, which was a nationalizing measure in that it uh, there were already, of course, plenty of states that had authorized marriage marriage for same sex couples, but this was this was a this was a federal measure. So. How did that come about? I mean, it's a very big question, but how did it come about that the the federal government in the 20th century was able to assume those powers? And and where does that leave the situation now with regard to lockdowns? This expansion of power, I think, is is traditionally associated with the administration of um, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, when um, government does start in sort of this incredible period of crisis with the the Great Depression followed by the Second World War, government does start to take, or the, the federal government does start to take a much bigger role in managing a lot of these questions of social welfare. And that's where the, the Centers for Disease Control then sort of comes out in about 1946 with the um, Center for, I think it's the Communicable Diseases Center um, was its original name, which begins to handle infectious diseases. Um, and so it's this, this period of crisis which really generates this uh, this shift. But um, the states continue to retain a lot of these coercive powers that I've just mentioned. And they might not be as sort of overt as um, as some of those sort of very Puritan almost regulations that I've just been talking about. So that sort of police power um, still remains a state responsibility. So what you're telling us, Grace, is that although Governor Cuomo may say, look, let's read the 10th Amendment, let's look at the writings of these framers of the Constitution, and this will tell me what my responsibility is and what the responsibility of the president is. In fact, it's always been much, much more complicated than that. And although the Supreme Court has weighed in on this and political writers and politicians have weighed on this over the centuries, in fact, nobody really knows how to resolve it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, my answer and the reason I've had such difficulty periodizing this project and, and sort of setting an end date on it is because they haven't really been resolved. We had last year, we had this constitutional controversy in the UK um, concerning the prorogation of Parliament, um, which was taken to the Supreme Court and uh, it was resolved. But a lot of people started saying, well, wouldn't it be better if we had a codified constitution, a bit like the United States, like other nations, where it's all just set down what the relationship is between these different parts of government, who's allowed to do what? And 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 what I want to say to all those people is, well, the, America does have that. And it still hasn't solved many of these fundamental problems because ultimately um, the founding fathers, and there are actually some nice quotes from the Constitutional Convention where they make this point, Governor Morris particularly, that, you know, we can't predict what's going to happen in the future. Um, And a lot of these massive constitutional questions end up being um, resolved only as and when they actually arise. Um, And one of those, I think, you know, is the the powers of the state and federal government, and they can be relitigated, and they can come before the courts again and again, and people can have different answers to them at different periods of time. So, I mean, my comforting answer is uh, none of this really has been resolved. <laughs> um, 
One thing we can say for sure is that when Trump says that he is in total control, the federal government has total authority, that's clearly wrong, isn't it? I mean, there's oh, there's nobody, there's never been anyone in American history who would have agreed with that assertion, is there? No previous president. Well, I think, you know, we have to remember that the origins of the the United States, all of the complaints against Great Britain when it came to, you know, the Declaration of Independence were against the king. (laughs) Um, um, Monarchy has not traditionally been a popular form of government in the United States. And I think to say that the president has or was intended to have complete power would be massively to overstretch um, the case. And, you know, some conservative or some Trumpian legal scholars will make the case for the executive power being this very expansive power. But I I think most constitutional scholars would fundamentally disagree with that. There's a funny, there's something we should perhaps note here, which is that um, broadly speaking, um, people on the right in American politics, when you think of the Federalist Society, um, tend to, or historically have tended to emphasize uh, states' rights as opposed to the federal government. But at the federal level, within the federal government, they've also tended to emphasize executive authority. Uh, So the presidential powers in relation to Congress and indeed the judiciary as well. Um, and what, what do you think, Grace? How much of this is just positional? I mean, we're now in a situation where, you know, the Republicans are in control, obviously, at the executive level of the federal government and rapidly gaining control at the judicial level. You now, we might see a switch between the two parties, and it might be now in the interests of the of the Democrats, people on the left in American politics, to start talking about states' rights and start talking about uh, political solutions rather than judicial solutions in order to advance a progressive agenda. Absolutely. I think we see this throughout American history, that commitment to states' rights tends to vary with your particular policy agenda and where you can most effectively sort of um, execute um, the policies that you want to execute. So, you know, way back in, in 1798, I mean, Governor Cuomo is talking about um, Jefferson and Madison because they were the fathers of the state's rights doctrine, in a sense, um, with the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions when they were saying, look, federal government, you can't do that um, with reference to these uh, coercive, these these very concerning laws that um, John Adams was trying to pass, um, in fact, did pass. But then Jefferson turns around when he's president and says, actually, I want to accrue as much power as I can to myself. And the New England states, which are traditionally very federalist, were saying, we're going to secede from the union. We have states' rights. And you see this switch going back and forth. But I absolutely agree. I think too little attention has been paid um, by progressives to state politics recently. And I think we are going to see a shift because the states still control um, voting rights. They still control um, congressional districting, which is obviously going to be a big concern. Um, and they control a lot of these other policy areas. And if if they're sort of, if the Democrats fund um, state legislative races, I think they could see a really um, big shift at the state level. Grace, Thank you very, very much indeed. That's been a a really uh, illuminating conversation. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank Thank you. you. And you can read a fantastic op-ed piece by Grace Mallon on that subject in the Washington Post. So if you want to find out what authority the President of the United States has in relation to state governors, don't ask the President. The President of the United States has the authority to do 
what the president has the authority to do. Not very illuminating. But don't rely either on the theoretical writings of the framers or even the document of the Constitution itself. The relationship between the federal government and the states has been forged and is continuing to be forged in the reality of politics. And that's it for this episode of Last Best Hope, the podcast from Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, in which we try to understand whether or not the United States is now or has ever been the last best hope of Earth, studying it from the outside in. My name's Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.